This is Shane Gibson's podcast from ClosingBigger.net. Today, I've got Anthony Ian Narino, and he's an international speaker, author, and sales leader. His acclaimed blog draws an average of 65,000 readers every month, and I've been reading his blog for years. He leads a high-performing sales team, speaks to sales organizations nationwide, and teaches part-time at Capital University's Capital School of Management and Leadership. He lives with his family in Westerville, Ohio. Now, my motivation, thanks a lot for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and my motivation for getting you on the show today was, of course, uh, when I came across uh, the only sales guide you'll ever need, which was kind of my motivation for getting you on here now. And it's packed with timeless sales principles, real-life insights, and really just how to take your sales to the next level. So uh, we're going to start digging into that, if you don't mind, and then you know we'll see where this conversation takes us. I think we've got a lot to talk about. Is there any author that doesn't want to talk about their brand new book? <laughs> I don't think so. I think, yeah. Actually, you'd be surprised. I, I've met a few. They're not in sales, though. They're usually in engineering yes. or science, you know? Uh, and so, how did you get started in sales? And how did you turn that into being a sales thought leader, speaker, and author? I got started in sales when I was a kid. I fronted a rock band here in Columbus, Ohio, where I'm from. And I decided I was going to move to LA and front a hair metal band out there because it was a bigger market to play in. And I thought I could have more opportunity as a, as an artist that way, if you could call it the kind of music we were playing art, and I'm not sure you could, uh, our motivation was not artistic. But when, when I got out there, I had to have a job and I worked in the family staffing business growing up. And so I went to staffing firms and I hustled my way into a job um, that I probably shouldn't have gotten. But the person who wanted to hire me said, you have to wait and meet the vice president of this half of the United States before we hire you. It's just part of our process. And being uh, a, a, somebody who sold from a young age, and I just started to realize how much of a salesperson I was, I said, listen, I'm going home to get my stuff, and I'm coming back, and I'm taking your job, or I'm taking somebody else's. I want to work for you, but I can't wait. And they said, okay, then we'll just hire you. And uh, I, got, I got hired right away. I was working a light industrial staffing desk, which means interviewing people for warehouse work. And coming from a small family business, I mean, what you did when you didn't have jobs to send people to is you tried to find open jobs. No one expected me to do that, though, in Los Angeles. They expected me to just kind of hang around. But I just started doing what I knew how to do. I called people. I asked if I could come and meet with them. Some of them said yes. I asked if I could help some of them, and some of them said yes, and I started building this little book of of business. The manager that hired me had a family crisis, and he had to move back to New York, and I got a new manager, and he quickly realized that the salespeople there weren't selling. And he walked up to my desk one day with a report, and he said, whose accounts are these? And I looked at the list, and they were all my accounts. And he said, how did you, meaning somebody with hair down to his waist, in a ponytail, fronting a hair metal band at night, win these accounts. And I told him, I just call people and I see if I can help them. And some people let me help them. And that's how I get these accounts. <laughs> and he said, I want you to go into full-time outside sales. And I remember hearing him say, I want you to become a psychopathic axe murderer and go on a killing spree in the greater Los Angeles area. Because I thought salespeople were selfish, manipulative, pushy, people that made people buy things that they didn't really need. And of course, my only experience at that time with salespeople at all was with car salespeople. 
so I didn't have any other frame of reference to know that there were different kinds of salespeople and some were really good. I resisted him until he threatened to fire me. And then, um, I decided to go ahead and give it a try rather than having to move back to Columbus. And I went into outside sales there and I won the largest account on the Western half of the United States that year in a $4 billion company. And, uh, I, I fell in love with the job. I fell in love with actually just trying to help people solve problems they couldn't solve without me. And that's what we do in sales, even though people don't think of it that way. And that's, that's amazing. Cause I think it's, it's the non sales type has such huge resistance because of the branding that sales gets. And, the, and a lot of it has to do with the lack of, I think, training and development of people um, that, you know, a lot of these guys that we send out on the road as road warriors, as salespeople, many of them haven't had training or development or mentoring in years. And so I think, you know, you, you end up getting a lot of that. But I think back when you, you started, and I probably started around the same time in sales, I think that was a pretty common archetype, the, the, the pushy sales guy. So it's... I think probably your skill set and your wisdom you bring to sales is because you come from that different context. Yeah, it was never, I never felt like when, when my manager said to me, I want you to be a salesperson, I thought I can't be that because (laughs) I'm not the kind of person that's going to try to hurt another person. I don't want to hurt people. I'm trying to help people. And it, it took a while for, for me to really understand that selling is something that you do for someone and with someone. It's not something that you're doing to someone. And for a long time in sales, I would say from the 50s to, you know, probably deep into the 80s, it was something that you did to someone. But that hasn't been true for at least a couple decades. I mean, now we're way more collaborative. We're way more other oriented. We're made more solutions oriented. And um, most of those stereotypes are no longer true. I mean, certainly there's some bad actors. I'll tell you, I teach a class at Capital called Personal Selling. And to start that class off, I ask all of the undergrad students to give me the words that they would use to describe salespeople. And they give me this horrible list of stereotypes, right? Everything that you can imagine. And I wait until they get about one whiteboard full. And then I ask the class, I say, if one of your parents works in sales, raise your hand. And about a third of the class, their hands go up. And so I'll find someone and I'll say, who works in sales, your mom or your dad? And they'll say, my mom. And I'll say, so your mom is a selfie, pushy, manipulative bitch that takes advantage of people? And she'll go, no, my mom's wonderful. Her clients love her. She would never do those things to people. And uh, I just pick them off one by one and sort of explain at the very outset of the class, selling isn't what you think it is. It's not something that you're doing to someone. And when you look at your parents and recognize your parents couldn't do that, most other people's parents couldn't do it either. Fantastic. Now I look at your book and it has two sections. It has um, mindset and skill set. Like part one is mindset, part two is skill set. And maybe to start off with, I'd like to ask a few questions about mindset. I mean, for me, I think mindset is, a, is way more important than skill set, almost harder to attain in sales and, and sustain. So what are some of the processes that you teach personally or in the book to help people develop the right mindset for sales success? It's it's so funny that you say that. If you would have been the first editor to look at this book, we would have published together. But he looked at the mindset section and said, I don't understand why this is in the book. <laughs> and, and I said, you've never sold before, have you? Yeah, he's never he been said, beaten up verbally. <laughs> no, he said no. And then I said, well, have you ever led a sales organization? And he said no. 
And I said, okay, um, you're going to have to trust me that I know what I'm talking about when, when it comes to sales. And I'm going to have to trust you that you know about publishing. And, uh, he just didn't like it. He didn't understand it. And it, it is, you're right. It's the foundation. It doesn't, you no good to have the skills, but not have the right mindset. So, you know, people like this, they've got great skills, but their mindset's messed up. So the book covers the first half of the book is self-discipline. And that's just willing yourself to do what needs to be done before it needs to be done. You know, that's the thing that separates people who are successful from people who aren't successful. Delayed gratification. I can set down my phone. I can close the browser. I can do my prospecting work. I have the discipline to nurture accounts. It moves from there into things like optimism. And the reason I put discipline before optimism is I think that optimism is a discipline. It's hard to block out all the negativity that surrounds us and hard to maintain that optimistic attitude, especially here in the United States when this is being recorded and we're in an election cycle. Um, perhaps the ugliest election cycle in in U.S. history, and then from it, there, it's, that's, it's even scary from Canada. I will tell you that. <laughs> yeah, it's a, this, this is uh, this is the worst you know we've ever seen. I it, have and massive it just empathy keeps worse. for all Americans. I really do. It's uh, and, well, that's uh, because you're yeah. Canadians, and the Canadians are full of empathy. We know that <laughs> it's part of your process, which we would call process here. Yes. Um, the book moves into things like caring, which is how do you get rid of the the self-orientation and have another orientation to resourcefulness, initiative, um, persistence, communication, accountability, and things like that. And all those things really set you up, uh, Shane. Here's the way I view it. Who you are matters more than what you do. And that's the part that I think we've gotten wrong for a long time. We think we can hire somebody and say, we need them to do this. But now what we need them to be is to be this, be the value creator, be the trusted advisor, be the consultative person. And this really strikes home for me, and I'd love to see what you're observing. But one of the things I'm observing on people wanting to improve sales, their sales in their organization, they're leaning more and more, especially large organizations, I find they're talking about you know better automating through CRM. They're talking about better scripts. They're talking about you know, people being able to push buttons versus, you know, be intuitive. And it's almost, I feel that they're missing that, you know, some of that is around uh, process or process, as you'd say, uh, you know, we need some of that. But if you have, you can have all that great automation, but I think there's too much focus on systemizing and automating technically wise. And then people aren't focusing enough on the mindset within corporate America. Do, do you agree with that statement or... I, I keep saying this. This joke's going to run out of time because I'm using it so often. But um, most people still find sex better than sexting. Um, we, there are some things that you can't automate. And trust and caring can't be automated. In fact, automation is the opposite of trust and caring. We're trying to make everything a transaction. And what I see sales managers and sales leaders and a lot of people that serve the sales industry as a whole, they're trying to automate things that shouldn't be automated because that's easier than helping people with their mindset, right? Mm -hmm. And if I can just automate it, then I don't have to deal with human beings. I just replied to a post on LinkedIn last week where one gentleman wrote that in 20 years, there won't be any salespeople at all because they're despicable selfish and everyone would get rid of all of them if they could, (laughs) um, because we're going to have artificial intelligence do this. And one one guy from Oracle, his comment was, and who's going to sell the AI to these people? Um, 
a salesperson, no doubt. But, you know, we, we're trying to automate human relationships and human relationships just don't work well with automation. It takes, you know, like you and I did coming onto this call, we had video going so we could look each other in the eyes and talk to each other because it's been way too long since we've talked to each other. Absolutely. But th- that, that part of us isn't going to go away because we have really good AI. And what people are really going to want when they have tough decisions to make and they really need help is someone who cares enough and who knows enough to help them. Yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic. So in some of these mindsets, I look through all of them and, you know, you've got sort of nine key, uh, I guess, chapters on mindset. I know there's a lot more beyond that. I how I look at uh, resourcefulness and this is an interesting one. Um, this is one. Is this something that you can develop or do you have it or not have it? I, I, I see some people that no matter what barriers you throw up in front of them, they find a way around to get a deal done. And other ones that, you know, no matter how good things are, they've always got an excuse on why they haven't taken action. Yeah. And I know that's kind of polarizing and not fair, but but I'm kind of getting to the point where can you teach things like resourcefulness and curiosity or develop those as mindsets? I think you can teach them and I think you can develop them. But I think for a lot of managers who didn't have a leader that knew how to give them a non-directive approach – they never get taught by somebody who's non-directive enough to, to say, listen, I could tell you the answer right now, but I don't want to do that. I want you to tell me what do you think two or three of your choices are, and let's explore what you think the right thing is together together before we do this. And I, I think it's important that people learn. People won't be resourceful unless you help pull that out of them. If you constantly say, listen, Shane, here's what I want you to do on this deal. I want you to tell them we'll reduce the price by 2% if they pay us in 30 days or less because that's really where where our stopping point is. Okay, so I just told you what I want you to do. That's fine. In some cases, that's even necessary. But if you want people to be resourceful, you could say, Shane, in this deal, what, what kind of offers do you think we could make that might resonate with the client? And why do you think those would be the right choices? So these and are, I'm going to keep doing that to you until you answer me. So these are coaching questions. If you were to Co- you know, take a coaching course through the International Coaching Federation, for instance, those types of questions they would teach you to ask people to help them generate their own ideas. And so it's kind of a leading question, but so do you think the area is we need to help sales managers develop coaching skills and also value coaching? Well, if they don't value it, they're making the worst mistake they can possibly make. Because imagine I'm a sales manager and I have 11 reps and I have to tell each of them what I want them to do in every single deal. And each of them have 10 deals. Now I'm trying to manage 110 deals by having these people who are now my dependents going out and and running and carrying the ball for me in the exact way I prescribe it and then coming back to give me feedback. I mean, what you want to do if you're a sales leader and you want to generate the resourcefulness in your team is you want to try to be more and more non-directive over time so that they're required to think. You hired them for their brain and you need to exercise that brain. You need to give them something to do with that. And so constantly pushing the envelope, I expect you to bring your ideas before I share any of mine. And I want to hear what you think and how you're thinking about it because eventually I don't want them to be a dependent anymore. I've got three kids at home. The last thing I would need is 11 more people that have to ask me questions at work because they're my dependents too. And that's how sales managers should look at that kind of coaching. Excellent. And from a sales management process, um, 
actually, I was talking to Kelly Riggs. Uh, you know, I was speaking at a, a conference with Kelly Riggs uh, in Chicago just uh, about three weeks ago, and we started talking about you know coaching formats and managing formats. And, and I guess you know part of that you know was the conversation around how many direct reports your average sales manager has. Is that you know once you get beyond you know, we kind of debated, I thought it was probably eight, he thought it was probably six, but you know, what's that kind of sweet number of the number of people that you really want to have your sales managers managing so that they can effectively coach and develop their people? Is there a number or is it more a system or a process needs to be tweaked? I I think it's going to depend on the industry and the way that the the client or your company is set up. I think it's going to, there's a number of variables. If you have a super long sales cycle and you have a lot of time to have conversations, you may be able to have more. Mm. And if you're in a more transactional business where things move really fast and you need to give people a lot of attention day to day, and there's a kind of a lot of things to respond to, I think that number has to come down, you know, and it might be five in some cases and maybe as many as 10 or 11 in another, but it just depends on what the demands are for, for that particular company. How often should I be coaching my people? I'm a sales manager. I've got a B2B sales team. We sell CRM software to mid to large size enterprises. How often should I be coaching my people? What does that look like? Well, you have a choice. And I think that the choice that I would give would be it's it's contextual. When do I do it and why? Every single interaction we have with a salesperson is a chance to coach them. If you're doing deal strategy, that could be a coaching call where you you say, let me go non-directive at the beginning, but then I want to be a little bit directive at the end because there's something that I need to have happen here. But I think every uh, every call gives you an opportunity to do that, although I know there are coaching organizations that think every coaching session should be non-directive, but it's not true. Hmm. If a person doesn't have the the mindset and they don't have the skill set and they're blocked because of some internal or external obstacle, the right way to coach them sometimes is just give them the right answers because they need to learn and they need to succeed and you need to help them do that. And so sometimes just saying, I'm going to coach you through this and let me tell you how to think about this. Here are the three choices primarily that you should be looking at and here's why, because I don't think they know that. So I need to make sure that they know what the three choices might be. And now here's why I think it's better in this case to do choice two instead of one or three, do you understand that? And what do you think? You know, and so you can do this in a way that serves the individual. Ultimately, we're, coaching is all about helping the individual grow and transform. So the more you can draw out their resourcefulness and their initiative and teach them to think and act on their own, the better your results are going to be. It's, it's huge. I mean, I look at our success and at how much of it is dependent upon, or at least our accelerated growth for, it doesn't have to be sales. I mean, I look at my martial arts teacher, longtime mentor and friend, Fred Shadian, and he's an incredible coach. I mean, he had to actually develop a new way to teach just to get some points across to me. <laughs> and, you know, but it was the ability for the coach to, to really be able to get the most out of the people. And I think that that's, we focus so much on hiring the right salespeople, which I think is, is valid and that sales recruitment is a whole other area which we could focus on. But I think that that's only the first step. And, and that coaching process is, is vital. And I, I kind of like what you said, where, you know, every, uh, every kind of interaction is an opportunity to actually develop our people. If, if, we, if we have that mindset as a manager. That's right. It's intentions. I mean, if that's your intention, you can do that. So the second part of your book talks about once we've got the mindset, 
laid out and a desire and goal to build the positive mindset and work with our people to do so. Then we've got this next part in your book. We talk about a skill set for sales success. Um, what's that about? Can you kind of maybe give us a quick overview of what you're, you're talking about? There's there's three levels of skills that I think exist right now. And basically what I did is I put what I think is essential for salespeople to be able to succeed. And remember, this book was written for salespeople. So if you're a salesperson, if you're struggling, you could read this and say, now I know where I'm deficient and I know what to do about it. So this, book, the is, same thing, this book is your so, sales coach in a way, even if you're a one person show, this book it is. gives you the map. Fantastic. And if you're a sales manager, it's a book that you get a lens to say, is this person just deficient in resourcefulness? I mean, is that what I need to work on with them so that they can do better? Or is it that they just don't take initiative? Or is it just that they don't really care about other people and they're very self-oriented and that rubs people the wrong way? I mean, so that's the first half. The second half, the first level of sales skills are things we've been doing for a long time, like asking for commitments and prospecting and telling stories or presenting and then the second level, I would call you know, the modern sales skills that we've been doing since we started solving problems and solution selling. That's diagnosing and negotiating around the different kinds of value that we can create. But now I think there's three more. And these are the ones that when, when I look at salespeople and say, where are they really deficient right now? They're deficient in three areas because we don't teach them, we don't train them, we don't coach them, and we just sort of ignore them and hope they get better. And the first one is business acumen. And I, I, con- I continually tease audiences that I speak to that you only need two things to be a trusted advisor. And then they guess all kinds of things. And then I tell them, no, you need trust and you need advice. And if you have the trust but you don't have the advice, you can't be a trusted advisor because you don't know anything. And there's all these things that are being written right now about how the Internet's changed sales and how we have information parity with the buyer now. If there's information parity, that's your fault. There should never be information parity. You should know more. How can you advise somebody if you don't have anything to advise them with? And so we send salespeople out with product knowledge training and some sales skills training and a pitch and a deck that talks about us and our company. And they're just not interesting and not valuable to the customer. So we're back to this idea of who do you have to be before what do you have to do? then you have to be a value creator. You have to be somebody with deep insight that can walk in and talk about whatever's going to impact their business and what your specific viewpoint is on that kind of thing. And then the other two are change management, because really when you're coming in as a salesperson, what you're saying is that I'm going to help you change. And change is difficult. And now that it's more complicated and there's not a decision maker, there's decision makers and there's not a power sponsor, there's power sponsors, and there's power obstacles, by the way. Um, You've got to know how to build consensus and lead change. And then the final one is just leadership altogether. And I don't think that we're paying enough attention to the fact that when somebody's accountable for results, they're really the leader in making sure those things happen. And whether we like that or not, the customers, our clients, they think, you sold this to me, you own it. Now, you got to help me get the result. And that's really the three biggies right now that I think if we focus on those salespeople will immediately start producing better results. And again, we're evolving the way that buying is evolving. We're evolving the same way. Things have changed. Now, our customer needs something different from us and we need to give them something different. Wow, that's a, that's a lot to think about, Anthony. 
I'm, uh, you know, I'm looking at all these areas going, which area do you tackle first? Uh, I, I think the business acumen one's really interesting is I had a, um, young entrepreneur, um, actually he's a second generation, um, you know, coming in to run a family business that was established. And one of the challenges when you're 20 something and you're going out there trying to do sales calls on 50 something CEOs, it's a bit daunting. And he said, how do I sell to CEOs or, you know, how do I, how do I become relatable? And he says, you know, it's really difficult to do that. And I said, okay, well, well, you know, do you have a list of all the books that they typically read and the magazines? Like, do you have a copy of Harvard Business Review that comes each month? Do you read the websites and press releases that they uh, check out? Hey, do you know what conference is coming up? They'd attend to educate yourself. And he's, and I won't name the product because they're kind of out the climb. He said, well, what does that have to do with selling X? <laughs> And and he kind of didn't quite understand is if you want to yeah. sell sell to the C suite in a specific industry, you have to be investing more on understanding their industry than maybe they have time to do, which is the, which is the advantage, right? As a salesperson, I think someone says, "How can I know more than my client?" Well, your client's running their business; they probably have thirty minutes a day to educate themselves on what's happening on in their industry. You could devote two hours a day, right? So I think that's a, the acumen piece is something, you know what, I don't think I've seen many people talk about in sales and it's a really, really key piece. So I love the fact that you're digging into that. Um, go ahead. Sorry. You sound like you're going to say something. No, just that, just that I think it is. And if I were 20 something, um, what I would do is I would go to people like that and say, I have a couple things that I've been told are probably going to be really interesting to you, but I don't have the same level of experience that you have. Can you share with me? how you view these particular challenges and how somebody like me should be thinking about how I would be valuable and help you. And uh, honestly, that's what I did from the time I was about 23 till I was probably 27. And every single client that I had a deep enough relationship with after a couple meetings educated me. And I learned about business because I had people teaching me how to think about their business like they think about it. And then when I caught on somebody else as a business that looks like that, I got some ideas about what they care about. It's great because, you know, people love teachability. They love people that want to learn and grow and develop and become better. And, and, and sometimes I think we, you know, the, the unwillingness to admit that we don't know in front of a client is because we want to look like we know what we're doing when actually the opposite where that, that the, a reasonable level of vulnerability in that area can actually endear you to the client. And, and build a stronger relationship. And, and it's so now these are like big concepts and we kind of skipped by uh, your chapter 15 on negotiations. Not skipped, but we mentioned it and went right to a dialogue on this. But I don't want to forget to ask a couple questions on this because sure. I, I, lo I look at negotiations and um, some of the fundamental basics of negotiations I find. And maybe I'm just uh, that salespeople are not doing it as well today as they were 15 years ago, that it's, it's an art that I feel that might be declining a bit because of, you know, the fact that most of our dialogue with people happens online before we, they, we even get into their office and things are quicker. And what do you think? Is that a, are you seeing that, that there's almost a bigger need for negotiations training now in the average sales force than maybe there was 15 years ago? Un undoubtedly. And you know why? Why? Because they're not they're not negotiating at all. They're simply <laughs> discounting. I'm literally when I hear sales leaders say my people aren't good negotiators, I say they're not even negotiating. 
They're simply discounting. They never ask for anything back for what they give up. They just don't. All they're doing it. They're the only negotiation that a lot of salespeople do is with their own company on what the discount's going to be. And <laughs> they're and negotiating they were, on behalf of the client. Yeah, and if they were as good negotiating with the client as they were negotiating inside their own company, they'd be really good negotiators. But they work really hard negotiating with the the owner of the business or their sales manager for discounts and and concessions. But they don't negotiate on the other side the other way, and that's the thing that's missing. And I think it's uncomfortable for people who haven't been trained and don't know how to even just push back on a request mm-hmm. for a price concession. I mean, and they just don't know how to push back on that request for a price concession. And they come back and say, well, they're paying less than that now. Yeah, well, they're not getting the result they want because they're underinvesting. We're charging them more because that's what it costs to get them the better result that they want. But you have to be able to explain that to them and justify the delta between what they're paying now or what your competitor's price is and your price. I mean, and it's just simply saying, Shane, listen, um, this investment that we put together for you is exactly what it takes to get you the results you want. And if you want to do something different, we're going to have to change the solution to match your investment level. But what I'm afraid of is that you're going to put these outcomes that we've spent three months talking about at risk because this isn't probably going to happen and this probably isn't going to happen whether you use me or somebody else. Does it make sense to revisit this or does it make sense to see if we can make the investment necessary to get the kind of outcomes that you're talking about right now? I mean, and just being conversant like that changes that, the look, shape that's of the conversation. Jim, anybody who's listening to this podcast right now, if you could just take that last two minutes that Anthony just shared with you and memorize it, it's going to save you a lot of money. <laughs> it's going to protect <laughs> a lot of margin. Lot of it's going to protect yeah. a lot of margin. And I, and I think that that that's uh, that's no that's brilliant and I and I think that we just don't have that price confidence to stick to our guns and and to really build the value and and I think that sometimes it's because we haven't even begun to build the build the value that we we're all talking about features and 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 benefits but in such a generic way that's unrelated to the client so you talk about the ability to create win win deals I'm kind of looking at the summary of chapter fifteen and how do you define a win win deal. Like what does a win-win deal sound like in a negotiation? Well, it, it has to be that what they end up with allows them to get the result they want, and it has to give you the profitability to deliver that. And I hear salespeople use you know poor language because they'll say something like, Shane, you know, we have to make a profit. We're a business and a business, you know, needs to make a profit. So we have to do this in a way that's profitable for us. Well, who's that about? I mean, that's about my win. And the, the sad thing for the salesperson in that case is that the other person cares mostly about their win. Mm-hmm. And basically, you have to frame this this discussion about a win-win so that you're focused on getting them their win at a price that allows you to get your win. And your win ends up being the ability to deliver this. There are a lot of people who would have they – would, they would buy the most expensive product, service, or solution in any line if they could afford it. And a lot of people are willing to give them what they want by matching their competitor's price. So they're not paying for what they really want. They're, they're discounting. They're getting a discount from the sales organization. And then that sales organization, this is too long and too complicated for this conversation, but they're changing their business model. If your business model isn't to beat people on price, you can't do that. And so you're changing the strategy and then you don't have the money to deliver. And then you start cutting corners and then you do poorly. And then people speak poorly of you. 
and then you just step onto the slippery slope of right. a downward spiral. So the win-win has to be you do have to be profitable and you do have to have the, the resources to deliver. And part of that's their money. And I'll just say one last thing about this. If your client could get the result they need making the investment they're making right now, they would have already done it. They're under-investing time. They're under-investing money. They're under-investing the resources and the conversations it takes to truly change. And if you're going to be a trusted advisor, you're going to have to go in and have those difficult conversations. Amazing. That's fantastic. Well, I think that's that was that's worth the the entrance price on the book right there, that chapter. Um, so that's that's fantastic. Um, I know we're kind of coming to uh, you know our timing here for the uh, the podcast. I'm sure you have other things to do on a uh, today than sit and talk to me all day. Although this has been amazing. Uh, kind of wrapping it up here, um, I'd like to f- f- finish with your your concept of leadership. You talked about the fact that. You know, you need to produce results with and through others, which kind of ties in with the fact that sales is about doing something together with the customer. And and so kind of pulling it all together, kind of what does that look like? Um, what does that sound like? What are, the, what are the key attitudes and principles of a sales professional that becomes a great leader? A salesperson that becomes a great leader goes and first works on their side, their company, and says, look, we're responsible for getting these results, and I need to make sure that we actually deliver because that's the promise that we made. And when things don't go well, they go and they work to get the resources and the energy directed towards producing those results. But at the same time, they also go to the client and say, listen, one of the reasons we're struggling to produce the results is because you really haven't changed the process the way that we described And so we're not going to be able to get the results until we go all in and make this kind of change. And what I would like to do with your permission is get a group of us together to talk about how we might do that so that it doesn't damage your business too much to go through this kind of a massive change, but that we can do it faster just so we can get you to the results faster. Who would we need to have in that conversation with us if we were thinking about doing something like that? And I got to get the teams together and say, I may not be the person that has formal authority on each side of this, uh, from the customer side or from my company side, but I am accountable for the results. And if you step up and you take accountability for results, you're a leader. And no one will come along and uh, take a sword, Shane, and you know touch you on your left shoulder, your right shoulder, and your head and go ahead and tell you you've gone through the leadership ceremony. Now it's okay for you to lead. If you decide that you're going to lead, everybody will just get out of your way and say, hey, listen, Shane was dumb enough to take this on. Why don't you just let him see how he does? He decided to be the leader on this. Let him go. Uh, and But they'll start supporting you if you decide that you're the leader. It just works that way. Fantastic. Love it. So we've been chatting with uh, Anthony Ian Norino, and he's an international speaker, author, sales leader, entrepreneur, and author of the brand new book, The Only Sales Guide You Ever Need. Now, how do we uh, learn more about this? What's a great website to go to to find out about the book? Uh, What's some other ways we get in touch with you if people want to reach out to you and learn more about your speaking, training, and books? The best place to go is thesalesblog.com, and if you're there, you're going to be ambushed by a pop-up. And we're going to get your email address so you can join my Sunday newsletter. And then uh, beyond that, you can go to theonlysalesguide.com to see the book and get some additional resources. Or just go to Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. It's everywhere. Hey, well, fantastic. Thanks a lot for being on the show. It's the first time, but I hope it's not the last. We'd love to have you back. It won't be. Fantastic. Have a great day. This is Shane Gibson's podcast from ClosingBigger.net.